Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. Like many of you, we are very upset over the murder of George Floyd and the violence being committed on our fellow citizens. We have followed the protests very closely, including in Washington, D.C., in which the National Park Service also played an awful role. Generally, our podcast is focused on vacations, on the wonder of our national parks and the great outdoors. However, as we've learned, even at our parks, our nation's sorry legacy on race has intruded. We've explored this in some of our podcast episodes, and we thought it would be best to replay our interview with Ranger Shelton Johnson on the subjects of race, nature, and the national parks. Hi there. We have a real special treat today. I'm speaking with Shelton Johnson, who's an interpretive park ranger at Yosemite National Park. Many people know Shelton from the Ken Burns documentary, uh, America's National Parks, America's Best Idea, we're really lucky to have him today, and we're going to have him in two guises. We're going to be speaking with Ranger Shelton Johnson in character as his character, Sergeant Elise Bowman, Buffalo Soldier. And so we're going to have a bit of an exploration of turn-of-the-century Yosemite National Park and some of the experiences of Sergeant Bowman. And then we're going to telescope back to our time and talk with Ranger Johnson about Yosemite and about a few things that are affecting the park and a few things that are affecting the park physical landscape, I think the landscape of those who are visiting the parks, and I'm really looking forward to that. So with that, Shelton, how are you? Well, my name is Elise. Oh, Elise, I apologize. Sergeant Bowman, and I really appreciate your taking time to speak with us today. And I'm speaking to you from over in the East Coast, so I apologize in advance of my ignorance, but let me make sure I have my notes correct. You're Sergeant Elise Bowman, Troop K, 9th Regiment, 24th Inch Infantry. Is that correct? No, it's a 9th Regiment of Cavalry. I'm not an infantryman. I'm a cavalryman. You're a cavalryman. That's correct. So listen, let's start there. Where am I speaking to you right now? Where are you right now? Right now, I'm in Yosemite Valley. You're in Yosemite Valley. And the fact that I'm in Yosemite Valley might throw some people because the soldiers, when we're here, we serve up in the high country. We don't do anything down here in the valley because the valley is run by the state of California. And there's a park guardian that does that. But the valley is not part of a national park nor is the Mariposa Grove, those big trees down south. Those trees aren't part of a national park either. Why is the cavalry in the high country in Yosemite? What are you doing there, Sergeant? Well, the thing you want to keep in mind is that this whole thing called a national park is a new idea. And whenever you got a new idea anywhere in the world, anyone dreams up something that no one else has dreamt up before, people don't usually respond by saying, well, that's a, that's a great idea. I don't know why I didn't think of that. Usually when they hear something that's completely new, uh, they act like they've been listening to somebody who's been drinking. And so that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And so that's that's kind of the response you get when someone brings up the whole notion of a national park, the whole notion of setting aside land that you're not going to do anything with, but walk through it and look at it, maybe marvel at its beauty, but that's about it. But in a country where people are looking at timber and you need trees to build a town or, you know, you need water to put out a fire. I mean, there's there's so many different ways you can look at the natural world. It just doesn't make much sense to have timber that don't get cut down 
and animals that can't be shot for food. <laughs> right. But early 20th century America, I mean, isn't that our God-given right is to access those resources? So what's the reaction of our fellow citizens when they run into you and they have an axe in hand or they have a deer they just shot or they're grazing? What's their reaction when they see you and your fellow troopers? Well, they're not too happy to see us. You know, one thing to keep in mind is that there are a lot of things that happen in this world by people who, in their own mind, are doing something that's right, but other people look at it in a completely different way. Before the park was created and back in, you know, 1890, people could come up here. I mean, these settlers, they'd come up here into the area that is now the park, but it wasn't the park then, and they'd cut trees down for firewood, and they'd shoot the deer to feed their families. And that what they were perceived, people saw them as doing the right thing. They were perceived as doing the right thing. But, you know, on October 1st, 1890, when the park was created, they crossed that boundary into Yosemite. And now what had been good is bad, and what had been right and proper is now wrong. And so they're not too happy about that. And I can understand why. Because they had, it's become a habit for them to do what they've been doing. And then to see a colored man or a group of colored men in a uniform, and they're not used to seeing that either. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that happen here in Yosemite that people are not used to seeing since the park was created in 1890. And having a colored man, a group of colored men in uniform stopping them from doing what they feel is their right to do, well, that's just don't set too well with a lot of people. So you're a colored regiment. Is that correct, Sergeant? Well, yeah. What I mean by colored regiment is the soldiers, all the soldiers, you know, non-commissioned officers, the privates and corporals and sergeants, we all colored. You know, but the officers, well, the officers are white, except for Captain Young, that is, that he's down there in Sequoia, and uh, he was running Sequoia, so we're also proud of him because of what he has accomplished, you know, graduating from West Point. He told me once when I was on that ship called the Logan coming from the Philippines, he said the worst thing he could ever wish on the enemy would be to make them colored and a cadet at West Point. And I guess that says everything about how a colored man might be treated or was treated as a student at West Point. Right, because he himself is a graduate of West Point. That's correct. So I remember reading about the Indian Wars, and I remember reading about something called the Buffalo Soldiers. Is that who you all are? Well, that's one thing you want to keep in mind is that most of the soldiers that I serve with, they don't necessarily think of themselves as Buffalo Soldiers because they're too young. They're all veterans of the Philippine War or the Spanish-American War. Ah. They're all in their, you know, their 20s. I'm, I'm in my 40s. So I'm old enough to have been in the Indian War, and so when you fight with these Plains Indians, the Lakota, the Dakota, Sioux, the Cheyenne, you know, the Kiowa, you fight with them, well, they got something to fight about. They're trying to hold on to their land. This is the land of their people, the land of their ancestors. That's something that's in the blood itself. It's in your bones. It's in your marrow. You can't separate an Indian from the place that you find them. It's one is an extension of the other. But when you from South Carolina or Mississippi and from South Carolina, from a little town called Spartanburg. And you don't have very many opportunities down there because people still see you the way they saw you when you were enslaved. And you're looking for something better. I, I ain't met anyone in this world that's not looking for something better. Everyone's got a certain measure of unhappiness of where they are. and They want something even better than what they got. And so I didn't want to be a sharecropper. And most of the men in my troop had the same dreams that I had, trying to get out of Mississippi or try to get out of Alabama to find something better. So we joined the Army. Well, uh, that's why we're here. Well, I'm, I'm sure you would carry out your duty and have carried out your duty, but it sounds like you have some empathy with the Indians. Is that a fair assumption? I don't quite understand that word empathy, but all I can say is if it's anything like sympathy, 
but maybe it's a little bit deeper than that. And you got it right there because the thing to keep in mind is I am Indian and some of my men are Indian. And so if you Cherokee, I'm Cherokee, I'm Seminole. We don't say Cherokee. It sounds more like Chalagay, the way my mommy would say it. But Mm. if you Cherokee and you Seminole and you African, well, that kind of every time you got something in you that's some other people, that's now your people, it makes you see the world differently and you see yourself differently. So I look at these people here, these Awanichi, the, the Miwok, the Paiute that are around here, and they remind me of people that I know back home. You know, so it's not an easy thing to wear the uniform of the government that killed your own people. And that's why my grandmother, she's Seminole, and uh, she don't care too much about the United States government on account of what they did to the, her to her nation. But, you know, sometimes you make choices and sometimes choices are made for you. And I'd say every color man in the Ninth Cavalry is someone who's been in that predicament. They've had a lot of choices made for them. And $13 a month, it sounds pretty good if all you know is sharecropping. Right. I'm sure. So is this good duty for those $13 a month? Or do you feel wearing the uniform of the federal government, do you feel a little bit of internal tension on carrying out your duty? Or is being the high country of Yosemite, do you think that's a good spot for you to be? And are you grateful for your deployment? Well, you know, you don't expect anything in the Army to be good duty in the way that you might think of it. It's all going to be something that could get you killed if you're not careful. But I did hear when I was at the Presidio, we were down there after coming back from the Philippine War. I heard that the soldiers that got sent up to Yosemite and Sequoia, one officer, I think it was, you know, I got to think, I think his name was McClure. He referred to this duty as, or this place, as the Cavalryman's Paradise. You know, I mean, I heard about Fiddler's Green, a place you go to once you've been killed. But that never appealed to me. I'd rather not ever see that place. But the whole idea of going to a place that's a paradise for soldiers, because there ain't no one there that is trying to kill you, you know, right off, that sounded pretty good to me. What Yosemite is, and that's kind of what Sequoia is, it's a beautiful place, and I don't think the word beauty does it justice. Now, it sounds like you were part of the Philippine insurrection, or at least helping to put down the Philippine insurrection, which I know was a nasty conflict. So I would imagine being in Yosemite must seem a bit of a relief, but can you compare where you've been? It sounds like you've been deployed all over the country, San Francisco, the Philippines, and now you're in Yosemite. Is there something singular about being in Yosemite in terms of what you're being able to see for us back east? Is there something singular about it as compared to where else you've been in the south or over in the Philippines or anywhere else in the country? Well, there ain't no place that I've ever seen this like Yosemite. They got this word for it here. They call it a high country. You know, where I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, my my mama talking about a high country. She's talking about heaven. She's talking about some place you get to, you know, once you just put off this, this flesh we got on our bones and you just move to something that's just light, just, just, just the wind. You up there, you know, in the presence of God. Well, you don't have to die to get to such a place. I mean, all you need is a good horse and it'll take you right up to the high country. And that's the thing I like about this. I don't know for certain if I ever really want to leave. You don't really have that opportunity when you're in the army to decide where you go. You're told where you're going to go. You're told what you're going to do. And there's no one here that's actively trying to kill us. So it's definitely good duty compared to being in the Philippines when those folks are fighting for their freedom and we were there trying to take it away. Right, right. And you said, Sergeant Bowman, you're in your 40s now. So, and I don't mean to presume, but you may be getting closer to the time where you leave the military. What would you think you would do next? What opportunities are there for you if you're not in federal service and in our military? One thing you want to keep in mind is my mother and my father, you know, they had been enslaved before emancipation, obviously. 
And they never owned the land they worked on, that they bled on, that they sweat over. You know, that land was owned by someone else. That's the whole notion of someone who's sharecropping. You know, you share the yield of what you put in that ground, the seeds that bear fruit. You share it with someone who owns the land. So I'd say that on behalf of my mom and my daddy, the one thing I want to do more than anything else is own a patch of this earth that only belongs to me, that I can say, this is my property. I ain't no longer property. My mom and my daddy, they no longer property. But property is a word that means I got something I can put in my pocket, not someone else. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm just looking forward to a time when I can get rid of this uniform and get rid of these officers who tell us telling me what to do. <laughs> And I can decide for myself. I mean, that's what it means to be a human being, to be an adult. You know, you, you make your own choices. You make your own decisions. You make your own way. You chart your own way through this world. But if you colored and you south of the Mason-Dixon, somebody's telling you what to do, where to go, what to dream, and who to be. I'm tired of all that. That's why I had to walk out of South Carolina. So are you going to walk back to South Carolina for that patch of land, or are you thinking California? Where would you be, do you think? Well, to be honest with you, I kind of like the country right around here. I yeah. ain't seen a place like it that's this pretty. <laughs> it sounds like a great spot to, to own a patch of land. And again, it's a bit of a, like your mom said, it's a bit of like heaven. So I imagine that's a nice spot to be and a peaceful spot to be in, given all the things that you've seen, Sergeant Bowman. It is indeed. Well, listen, Sergeant, I know you have some duties to attend to, and I know your time is short. So we really appreciate your spending time with us back east and educating us on what you're doing in the high country of Yosemite. So thank you very much, Sergeant Bowman. Well, you're welcome. And I'll just say what you just said. You said your time is short. And that's one thing you realize when you're in a country like this, all of our time is short. And you see it when you're out here in the wild. You see animals come into this world and you see them come right out of it. And you're just seeing a mirror that's reflecting your own life and what's going to happen you know, thereafter. So um, I appreciate you asking me these questions. Well, I appreciate your taking time. It sounds like along the way, you've learned a lot of wisdom too. So thank you for passing that along to us as well. Well, you're welcome, sir. Thank you, Sergeant. I appreciate it. Sergeant Elise Bowman, Troop K, 9th Cavalry, U.S. Army. Thank you again. You're welcome, sir. Sergeant, if you're still there, can I talk to Shelton? Hello, how are you? <laughs> hey, there he is. Hey, that was good. Thank you. I hope I hung on for the ride okay. So uh, thank you for doing that. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. That was a great education and I really appreciate it. I didn't know Sergeant Bowman was in the Philippine War and part of the Philippine insurrection. I don't know if he saw tough action, but I do know, what little I know is that was a nasty, nasty conflict. So I have a lot more sympathy for Sergeant Bowman even before then, because not only did he have to go through what he had to go through, but being a veteran of that conflict, again, I'm sure being in Yosemite must have felt pretty peaceful for him. I, I hope it was for him when he was there. Well, you know, to keep in mind is that one thing that I've just realized is that when they came to Yosemite and they had to deal with the silence, the literal stillness of the highest mountain range in the United States, we look at it and we see the medicine of that. But they might have had a completely different experience because when they're in the Philippines, it was literally guerrilla fighting, guerrilla warfare. So they're thinking the silence is usually precedes a gunshot ah. or a fusillade of gunfire. So I'm pretty certain that they were uncomfortable in the high country initially, because even though beauty is its own kind of medicine, as John Muir would put it, you know, you use that phrase, beauty, hunger. If you've been indoctrinated in warfare, and that kind of warfare that was going on in the Philippines, then coming to a place that's this silent might have been initially, and probably was initially, unnerving to them, because it's the silence that precedes the gunshot. Right. So they would have looked at the stillness or listened to that stillness and perceived it in a completely different way. Because the quiet that they experienced in the jungles of the Philippines 
and it was never true quiet, just like it's not true quiet here in the Sierra. There's the wind in the trees and the sound of a bird song. There's animals. There's the, a river or creek flowing by. All those things were part of their environment. But it's interesting to me how one, through experience and history, can associate a negative quality to something that innately is positive. That's fascinating. I never would have thought about it that way. But you're right. It must have been very disconcerting to have that space and silence that we enjoyed on our vacation or you get to see every day. Again, as you said, unnerving. Yeah, it's like the folks that visit national parks, they go to national parks, you know, to experience that stillness and that quiet. But every once in a while, parks can surprise you. Like in 1877 in Yellowstone, the Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce were fleeing the troops of General Nelson Miles. They went right through Yellowstone National Park in 1877. The park was five years old. So imagine being a tourist there, and suddenly there are these native peoples fleeing the United States Cavalry right on their heels. So it's interesting how a place that one can perceive as being bucolic, still, tranquil, and all of those things, in a snap of a finger, you could see it, this is not right. Something's not right here. It's too quiet. You know, that sort of thing. Well, I wanted to key off that a bit. So how do you, I mean, that contrast we were talking about in Yellowstone, where you have a visitor and the Nez Perce are, are fleeing and streaming through, yet it's supposed to be this democratic ideal that you've talked about eloquently, and, and Daniel and I spent a lot of time speaking about you know, in your mind, how do you reconcile the democratic ideal, the national park idea, and particularly the crown jewel of Yosemite with some of these internal tensions that we've talked about, whether it's Sergeant Bowman's experience or, or things like the Native American experience or you know, just in general, kind of the idea that the parks are for everybody, but in reality, sometimes they're not for everybody. How have you thought about that over the course of your career? Well, that's basically that is my career. Because the thing that's important to keep in mind, even though, as you said, the parks are a democratic extension, I, I put it this way, the parks are the whole notion of democracy turned into an environment within which you can breathe its air, you can breathe the fragrance of a democracy, of that idea itself, you can walk through it and leave your footsteps behind you. It's not something that's just simply on a piece of paper, it's an environment, it surrounds you, and you're within that atmosphere. And the challenge with that is that when you think of Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, when he wrote, We the People, you know, he's not referring to women, and he's not referring to indigenous people, and he's certainly not referring to people of color and especially African Americans at that time. So luckily, he didn't spell out, and nor did the founding fathers really spell out what they meant when they wrote, We the People. They meant men of property, free of debt. That's the people they were referring to. Thomas Jefferson was thinking about Benjamin Franklin and folks like that. He wasn't thinking about the fact that he owned people that were back on his property in Virginia. I mean, he was, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. That's part of that complexity of this democratic institution that we call the United States, but also the extension of that is the national park idea itself, where the benefit and enjoyment of the people, that's what's inscribed over the Roosevelt Arch leading into the north entrance of Yellowstone National Park. But in my research and in my study of this story, I always ask myself, who are the people? How do we define the people? In my mind now, it defines everyone, all Americans, and to a great degree, all human beings, because all of us are essentially the, the people, because every human being on this earth descends from a group of human beings that lived in sub-Saharan Africa you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. We're all one extended family. It's just that we've forgotten that. We've literally forgotten our roots and our rootedness to each other. How do you think about the concept of enjoying the park where, I mean, maybe this is overthinking it because I imagine 99% of the people that are flowing through Yosemite right now, they're on vacation. They're there to relax and have a good time and enjoy the park in situ. 
But do you ever feel frustrated that they will not have the full concept of the park unless they know the story of things like displacement of Native peoples or Sergeant Bowman's story, which is in Yosemite, I don't think, a negative story. I think it's an inspiring story. But Sergeant Bowman's background as a Buffalo soldier is certainly shines ideals on inequality. Do you ever get frustrated with that? Or should maybe, and Daniel and I talk about this all the time, or should we just relax a little bit and realize, well, look, we're on vacation and maybe we take a break from that. How do you advise one should approach that when you're entering a park like Yosemite or Yellowstone and the Nez Perce story that you just described? I'm the sort of individual that I don't want a piece of something. I don't want to see a fragment of the Mona Lisa or a fragment of some painting by Gauguin, or I don't want to pick up a book, say it's I'm, I'm reading Joseph Conrad. I don't want to be reading you know, one of his novels, and then find out that, oh, chapter five is missing. And then someone says, well, there's nothing of interest in chapter five. I want the totality of his artistic vision. I want the totality of that experience. And it's the same holds true when you're looking at national parks. You want the fullness of that experience. You don't want a fragmentary experience. And that's why people go into the backcountry, because they're trying to seek what they've lost. And that's why John Muir coined that phrase, beauty hunger, the fact that, you know, in 1900, most Americans would have classified themselves as being part of a rural environment. By 2000, most Americans classified themselves as being part of an urban environment. But we don't talk about what we've lost by moving from the country, literally, to the city. I saw that when I was in the Peace Corps in West Africa. There were so many folks that lived in villages outside of Monrovia. I was a Peace Corps in the Peace Corps in Liberia, and they had a word for it. You know, if you go to the city... You become que, you get not civilized, but acculturated to the urban lifestyle. And we've forgotten what it's like to have that intimate connection with earth around us. And we've forgotten what it means to be a human being, because to be a human being is to have that connection. So think about the Greek myth of Antaeus. As long as Antaeus and his feet touched the ground, he could not be defeated. And then Hercules defeated him by tearing him away from the ground and strangling him in midair. Well, that's basically the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That's what we've done as a society, to ourselves. But we don't need Antaeus to do it. It's self-rot. We're doing it to ourselves. So visiting a national park is planting your feet back on terra firma again, restoring that, that ancestral connection and reconnecting to an energy that's been flowing there, but now we're outside of that energy, but it's been flowing there since the beginning. Well, I, I want to pull on that thread a little bit because I know you've spent a lot of your time on the issue of bringing more, in particular, African-Americans to the national parks. And just some quick background for us, and we very rarely talk about this on our podcast, it's focused on the national parks, but I'm a commissioner for the New York State Parks on Long Island. And we have a tough time bringing African Americans to our parks, at least Yosemite has the excuse of being tough to get to. Whereas we'll have a neighborhood predominantly African American, literally 10 minutes from a resplendent state park, and that community does not visit that state park. And it's something that we've spent a lot of time working on. I know you've spent a lot of your career. So along those lines of isolating ourselves from the park experience, do you want to talk about some of the root causes of that and some of the things the parks are doing to address that? Because this is a problem that's affecting, I think, a lot of the parks, whether it's a federal, a national park or some of our more local parks. Yeah. Well, one thing to keep in mind is I have three favorite quotes about history. Well, the first one is, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. The second one is, history has always been a race between education and catastrophe. The third one is, history is a set of lies mutually agreed upon. 
So it's like H.G. Wells and then Napoleon Bonaparte was exiled to the island of Elba. And then William Faulkner was the first one was like from Requiem for a Nun. The point that I'm making, it's our perception of how we look at the past. And we even have it in a colloquial way. We'll say, oh, that, that's, why are you paying attention to that, man? That, that's history. That history has no longer any power in the world. And that's why I'm fascinated by and I enjoy walking into cemeteries and graveyards because those people are inert now. They are becoming part of the land itself. And yet when they were alive and walked this earth, they made changes that have lived on after them. Easily see it right here in Yosemite Valley and in Yosemite National Park itself. It's Basically, the entire, the entire Western frontier period is encapsulated in a walk through a meadow in Yosemite Valley, the period of that which was wild to agriculture development, transformation, the building of an urban infrastructure. It all happened right here in Yosemite. It all happened in Yellowstone. So you can see it kind of in microcosm right in the national park setting. So the problem is, is that for many African Americans, the best way of thinking of it is that when I was in the Peace Corps in West Africa, my students in Liberia, most of them were either bilingual, sometimes trilingual, and they knew the names of the plants that were around them because there was a medicinal use for those plants. They knew the name of all the birds and the wildlife that was around them. And, but due to the Middle Passage and the fact that Africans were shackled next to other Africans of a completely different nation, of a completely different culture, and most importantly, that spoke a completely different language, that was done intentionally to prevent rebellion, like the Amistad. They wanted to make certain that you can't start a rebellion unless you can communicate with the people that are part of the rebellion. So if you can't have that level of communication, then there's no uprising. If there's no uprising, there's no freedom. So, but with that loss of language, that becomes a loss of culture, that becomes a loss of ancestry and connection to the earth itself. Because it's the only way to explain how 400 years ago, people in Africa had this innate connection to the earth, an ancestral connection to the earth. And now, today, 400 years later, the one group least likely to have an experience of wilderness, of wildness, of being in a national park and enjoying that experience are African Americans. What happened in between the Middle Passage slavery? Is it possible to unpack that in some ways to reestablish that connection? Or is that connection just sundered forever because of slavery in the Middle Passage? No, there's, there's no such thing as a sundering forever, because it is, it is part and parcel of what it means to be a human being. All of us, every human being on this earth, at some point was native to a place, was indigenous to a place. And so all it takes is to reimmerse yourself. I mean, John Miro put in those terms of, of giving yourself that baptism back into nature. If you're standing right now at the base of Lower Yosemite Fall and all of that spray is blowing across that footbridge, it is a baptism that's above the water, not in the water. And any human being that's there can feel that excitement, can feel that electricity, and can feel this connection to something that's much greater than they are. And you don't have to be retaught that. You don't have to be retaught something at the cellular level. It's in your bones. It's in your blood. It's in your eyes. It's the light that you see. It's the sounds that you hear. It's what you can feel through your fingers, what you can feel through your feet. It's that innate connection between what it means to be a human being and what it means to be an earthling, to be of this place, to be of this planet. You don't have to be taught that. You just have to feel it. That's what's great about wildlife. They don't sit around thinking about, who am I? What's greater than them? They're just doing it. They're zen already. They're just in that moment all the time. So that's part of the problem. If you can just bring the people of color who have not received that invitation, that recognition that they are owners of America's best idea, you put them in these places, the places themselves need no interpreter. They will communicate directly, viscerally, to every individual in their own way, and they'll feel that connection. They won't think about it. They'll just be, and they'll be having it. 
The trick is, it's just the trick is, is getting them here. That's the thing. It, it's a trick, but actually, I'm going to argue with you that it's heartening because it's a policy issue. It's a bureaucratic issue of transportation. And at least for me, I can wrap my little brain around that. I was worried that there's something else going on. And so if it's just a transportation issue and then let the humanity take over, that's solvable, is it not? It is solvable. But the thing to keep in mind is that sometimes this gets reduced to blue collar working class, which is my family. Uh, it gets reduced to the, the economic barrier of African-Americans or other people of color may not have the financial wherewithal to just take a trip here. Okay, the best way I have to describe that is Oprah Winfrey. You know, in 2010, I invited Oprah to come here to basically make the announcement that was not made to African-Americans throughout our history that America's best idea belongs to you as well. And I thought that if Oprah made that announcement, if she made that recommendation that the national parks are the collective inheritance of every American, then that would change things. And so Oprah came here. She did that. And then she flew me out to Chicago and I was there. It was, it was a, the last season of her show. And I remember asking her, having a conversation with her right at the end of the show. And I asked her, have you ever visited a national park? And she said, no. And I'm thinking, she's a billionaire. She has her own private jet. She can go anywhere in the world whenever she wants to. But, but her trip to Yosemite in 2010 was her first trip to any national park anywhere in the world. She had never been to a national park before. And what does she have in common with the folks 400 years ago? Well, those were her ancestors. That's what she has in common. And she has that same experience of enslavement with her ancestors and Jim Crow with her. And all of that is that story that's written in the blood. There's no ink that's as potent as any story that's written in, in the blood. And that is what genetics is all about. It's the stories that are written within us. And that's what she shares. And that's what all people of color and all human beings share. We share that ancestral heritage. And that is what is the block right there, because we don't really, as a people, meaning African-Americans now, as a people, we're not really so much thinking of the bad things happening in nature. This is not a memory from 400, 300, 200 years ago. Well, nowadays it's closer to that. This is a memory of what's happened post, like during slavery and post-slavery. During slavery, if you escaped into the wild, that was good. <laughs> you know? Right, right. You're out there. You're good. That's a good thing. But after slavery, things change because now you have the fugitive slave law. You have the slave catchers going out there chasing you. So then it starts taking on this more of a negative cast, this negative tone to it because there's a place that's hostile, because there's hostile forces at work trying to take you back to what you escaped from. And when you shift from that to Reconstruction and Jim Crow, and the rise of the KKK, because now we've been granted freedoms that we didn't have before. 13th Amendment ended slavery, but not quite. 14th Amendment granted us the rights of full citizenship, but not quite right. 15th Amendment gave us the right to vote, but again, not quite right, because there are all these other rules in place. There were you know, anti-testimony laws on the books. There was literacy tests that you had to pass. You know, so there are all these barriers, these codes that were put in place to keep us where we were, not where we should have been based on those amendments. And so what I'm saying is, is that all of that stuff adds up to a disassociation from the land because you can't own the land at a certain point in African-American history, but you are, less than you are owned by the land because you were chattel, you were property. I feel like I've had a breakthrough here in understanding. So now that also drives insularity, right? So if you have lost that connection and you have a lot of these actions pulling against you, I'll pick on Oprah, then don't leave the south side of Chicago or 
here on Long Island. Don't leave Brentwood. Don't leave Freeport, right? So the idea is stay in our the neighborhoods where we feel comfortable, which is also a human instinct, right? That's right. Stay where you're comfortable and don't venture out because if you venture out, if you leave the boat, right, then something bad could happen, right? You're absolutely correct. So think about the film that just won Best Picture, The Green Book. Did that so African Americans could travel safely across the country. So the dominant culture has this history of, remember Anita Bryant saying, see the USA and your Chevrolet. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, think of the America post-World War II and, and the affluence, and we've become a world power, and the money's coming in. So, so not for everyone, but the money, some money's coming in. And so they're out there in their cars, they're going to the Grand Canyon, they're going to Yellowstone. But the advertising of that experience was not culturally inflected to people of color, especially it wasn't culturally inflected to African Americans. So we never received the memo. There was no a concerted effort on behalf of the National Park Service to reach African Americans and women until the 1960s when President John F. Kennedy was there and then Stuart Udall was the Secretary of the Interior and George Hartsog was the Director of the National Park Service. That was the real first real effort within the Park Service as an agency to reach out to these different groups, these different populations and make them part of the fold, so to speak. But what was going against that is the decade after decade, century after century of conditioning and disassociation of the land where you're no longer seeing the land as an incredible environment that shaped your culture, shaped who you are as a human being, as opposed to the land where your grandparents literally, or great-grandparents, or great-great-great-great-grandparents literally worked to the bone, bled, sweated, and died on and the echo of that legacy that reverberates today. And that's why many African-Americans, when they look out and they see the outdoors, they see these mountains. And I had this experience myself. I I was in Washington, D.C., Southeast D.C., working for the Park Service. And I showed my class, not my class, but a class of students. They were young people. I showed them a photograph of the two, it was a European-American man and a woman in their camping, you know, outfits. And they're out there in the middle of the wild mountains all around them and dark forests and all that. And the response of the kids who were mostly African-American was this. Did they make it out? Mm. Are they okay? Were they killed? And so that tells you the lens through which they were seeing that experience. They weren't seeing an experience that made them think, oh, I can't wait to get there. Oh, what a beautiful place. Oh, I love to get there. They were saying, that, oh, my God, you could die there. People are after you there. And I still hear to this day when I talk to some African-American families, I'm not going up into those mountains. The KKK is up there. And the KKK may not be there, but the legacy of the KKK being in rural America, being in the outdoors, the existence of sundown towns where African-Americans were not allowed to be after sunset. And if they were, they faced physical, psychological, emotional brutality as a result of that transgression. Well, the memories of all of that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And it's, it's the accumulation of all of that leads to, I'm not going up to Yellowstone. Montana? Do you know any black people out there in Montana? I can hear the conversations. Well, and it's not just that of, hey, the KKK may be up there, but it's the, and you mentioned this briefly, but it's uh, the inverse of Woody Guthrie. This land is your land. This land is our land. Well, no, this land is your land. This land is not my land. So one of the reasons why Danielle and I uh, take our kids all around is, forgive me, this is where I believe in American exceptionalism with our national parks, right? And I'm proud of, this is where I'm proud of my country, where if you're someone who doesn't have that same experience, you may say, yeah, this is not my land. And so why am I going to go to those mountains you talked about? I'm going to stay here in Anacostia or I'm going to stay here in Wine Dance on Long Island. 
I'm not leaving. So I can see that also holding one back from venturing forward too, right? So it doesn't feel as something that you want to share in because it was never shared with you. Am I off base? Exactly. No, no, you're actually right. And I put it this way. It's, it's also, as a community, we're suffering from a crisis of translation because we've been so removed from the national park experience since the whole messaging involving national parks was not culturally inflected toward us generations ago. It's not something that we were told was there for us. So why would we claim something that was never really in our own minds, collective minds, offered? And so here's the other thing. When people go on vacation, and that's really what you're looking at when you get to the gist of the National Park experience, people getting away from the workaday world, they're, they're supposed to go there to relax, to remove the pressures of the workaday world and be with their family, the people that they love all around them. Well, then that is the absence of anxiety. That is getting rid of stress. But if you talk to people of color, you talk to communities of color, African Americans in particular, about going out into the great outdoors, there's anxiety because of this history. They think about, again, the Green Book. You couldn't safely just travel to a place without you don't know whether or not you're going to be served, if you're going to be poorly treated, if you're going to be brutalized in some ways, either psychologically or physically. Well, all those things help you not venture out into the unknown, but stick to the tried and true. So what I'm saying is, is that the external barriers that were literally there throughout American history that kept African Americans and other people of color from venturing to the national parks, those external barriers are now essentially gone. But now these internal barriers are barriers that we have created in response to those external barriers, that history, that legacy of exclusivity as opposed to inclusivity. And so the result is we no longer need someone to say, you're not welcome here, boy. We say it to ourselves, but we don't say it. Boy, we says, I don't feel welcome here. And that sense of not feeling anchored and rooted in these other environments, it's that internal separation that keeps us separate from this experience, even though it's America's best idea, even though Yosemite and Sequoia were protected by African-Americans 100 years ago, that there were African-Americans who essentially were working as rangers before the National Park Service even existed. But internally, culturally, many African-Americans think that that's something that white folks do, but we don't do. And yet we were there at the beginning. I mean, Yellowstone, 1872, Yosemite and Sequoia, 1890. The Park Service wasn't created until 1916. Right. Well, with that, are those barriers coming down? Is it getting better? And I will, and this is a small sample size, but our first trip to Yosemite just a month ago that we've talked to you about. We thought we were there. We thought we'd being clever and being there in shoulder season. But our campsite in the valley in the front country was packed to the gills. And it was mostly what we saw school groups that were, you know, their week trip, their senior trip to Yosemite. And it was very heartening to see how, again, shoved back because maybe it's just that one week, but it was a pretty diverse group of people in our campsite, which we were really pleased to see. So is it getting better or did we just catch it on the right week? No, no, it is getting better. And it's getting better because people are becoming a little bit, maybe they're becoming a bit more daring, but it's more than that. I think it's also people within the cultures that we're speaking of, people that are Hispanic or Latino, Latino, Chicano, Chicana, they're basically realizing that this is part of what it's all about. And I see this effort to connect people of color to the national park as a natural extension of the civil rights movement. Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King, uh, Frederick Douglass, all of these folks are in that same current of transformation. 
And the parks is, I think, at that end of that arc. I mean, it's like what Martin Luther King Jr. said. You know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it does eventually descend towards justice. Well, it also descends toward a mountaintop. You know, and, and he talked about being on this aesthetic mountaintop or philosophical mountaintop. But I take it literally that maybe he really meant a mountaintop. You know, and we're the best place, the best views in the world on mountaintops. And the best places to have those views are in national parks, in, on wild lands and wilderness. And to me, the end of all of this is the beginning, beginnings, cultural beginnings as a species. So it's all, like John Muir said, you know, it's all going home. It's all a homecoming because that's where all they come from, these natural environments, these wild environments that we transform. And that's the beginning of human civilization. So it's all going home again, but it's just getting that word out, the good word, right. <laughs> you know, the out gospel, to everyone, right? yeah, the gospel, right. according to John, <laughs> but, but not just John Muir, the gospel according to Frederick Douglass, the gospel according to Martin Luther King, the gospel according to Langston Hughes, the gospel according to Sonia Sanchez, or, or Alice Walker, or, or Maya Angelou, or all of these folks. It's the same thing that we've been striving, is to redefine who we are and remember who we are within this new context called America. To find that which is African within this context called America. And you don't have to go to Uganda to be in Africa. You can go to Rocky Mountain National Park and feel Uganda. You can go to the Yellowstone and feel Chad, you know, because it's the same speck of dust floating around in eternity. You don't need all of that. We're already where we want to be. You know, Shelton, you don't, Danielle's smiling because you don't know how close you hit the mark. So Danielle, which we failed to tell you, is also a RPCB from mm-hmm. Madagascar. And okay. boy, being in the Mariposa Grove, Dan, I don't want to steal her thunder, but Danielle was saying... This is the only thing that can compare are the babo trees that are in Madagascar. And uh, so just that same sort of stately trees that are ancient. For her, going to Mariposa Grove was going back to Madagascar in many ways. So you really hit the nail on the head. Well, just think about Neil Armstrong when he was uh, in the Sea of Tranquility. And I remember he was talking about how he could extend his hand and with his one thumb, he could cover the entirety of the earth. And everything that had ever been lived and fought for every struggle, every love, every hatred, every petty dispute, every passionate battle. All of those things could be covered by the sum, which meant that, you know, if you were viewing that final battle, that final contest between a nuclear war, it would look like suicide from the Sea of Tranquility, because all you would really see is missiles going up and missiles coming back down on the same exact speck of dust. It would be a view of absolute insanity. It's just that recognition that Africa is wherever you happen to be. And whatever ancestry most Americans hail from, they're already there. If you're from Iceland, if you're wandering around in Ohio, you're still in Iceland. If you're from France and you're wandering around in Florida, you're still in France. Because from that larger perspective, the Carl Sagan way of looking at things, we've never left those. It's just a different slight facet of the same speck of dust. It's the same place. It's just one little planet. Right. You know, we, I could keep going for a long time, but knowing how tight your time is, I just want to, we'll take it from the pale blue dot. I want to telescope back into that pale blue dot, into Yosemite. For my last question, you know, Shelton, you've been in Yosemite for a while, and our next series is on Yosemite. Was there a moment in all your years there, maybe a moment of stillness and quiet, where you were there, maybe on duty, maybe off duty? just hits you like a ton of bricks, that transcendent moment? Or do you have those transcendent moments every day? And if you do, can you just share with us one, maybe even something that happened this week, 
but do you have a moment that you can share with us of your time in Yosemite? Well, one moment that I have is something that people wouldn't expect. It was in the middle of winter. It was years and years ago, and the storm was breaking, just like you know, we think about that clearing winter storm photograph, the famous photograph by Ansel Adams. It was that kind of moment. And I was near shuttle bus stop six. I mean, nothing like Glacier Point or deep in the, the wilderness uh, north of Tuolumne. I was near bus stop six. Every tree around me, every plant around me was completely encased in snow and ice. The sun broke through. Everything began to sparkle. Everything, there was just this prism effect that was happening all around me. And I was walking on the bicycle path. And at a certain point, something just changed. There was a change in the quality of the light. There was a change in the air and the atmosphere. There was a change in the pressure. Something was just different. It was like I was dislocated from where I was, but yet I was always where I was. And I was standing there, and I could feel the light around me was unlike any light I had ever seen. And it wasn't just the opacity of the clouds and the sun coming through. It was something that was much deeper than that. And it was palpable, and it was tangible, and I was not the only one to see it. Some visitors, a man and a woman came behind me. They were slowing down. They weren't looking at me. They were just looking around them. There was this look of astonishment and wonder in their eyes. And we all just stood there, and it lasted for about another 20 or 30 seconds, and then it just slowly, softly faded. I mean, it just faded from that place that we were in. It just struck me that, my God, any place in the world, any place in America, any place in Yosemite, it was just like a higher power reached down and just said, I like this little spot right there. And the fingertip touched, and that's where we were standing. And it was the most exquisite, most beautiful thing I had ever experienced since, before and since. And all it was was a spot underneath and near Ponderosa Pine and Ensign Cedar, near Shuttle Bus Stop 6. It was a quality of the divine of light that I had never seen before and never felt before. It wasn't just a light that you could see. It was a light that you could feel. And I wasn't the only one to feel it. But if that place... And this place that surrounded it had never become a national park. We would not have been able to experience it because that does not happen in a shopping mall. No, no. And it sounds like you were open to it and you were present at that moment. So maybe that's your challenge for us in parting here is to be open for those moments when they come, if they come, because like you said, they're pretty fleeting and take it when you can, especially when you're in a park like Yosemite. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I put it this way. If you want to talk to a higher power in most other places in the world, it's a long-distance call. But if you're in a national park, it's a local call. <laughs> Just As a matter of fact, <laughs> you don't even need a dime. You don't even yeah. phone. All you have to do is whisper, and the call will go through. <laughs> I like that. Well, what a great note to uh, end on. Shelton Johnson, interpretive park ranger, and so much more. Yosemite National Park, thank you so much for spending time with us. Please When you speak to him next, uh, thanks, Sergeant Bowman, as well, for spending time with us. We appreciated his time as well. Thank you again, and be well. You're very welcome. Have a great rest of the day. Have a great life. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 
If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.